Please. Why don't you get the mic before you speak, please? We've been trying in Seattle uh, after our last prison Dharma conference. Uh, we decided that part of the problem was preparing Dharma communities to receive someone mm. who wanted to come practice. Uh, and the, that's the tact we would take. Um, and so we formed a, a group uh, that meets at the um, Freedom Project in Seattle twice a month. It's called the Coming Home Sangha. And where we invite the leadership of various sanghas around uh, Puget Sound and the greater Seattle area uh, to come and to talk and to share, to meditate with whatever we call them up there, returnees, uh, whatever returnees um, come to the group that night so that we are simultaneously exposing returnees to what different styles of Buddhism are around. Uh, and we're also sensitizing the Dharma groups to being in the same room, talking with uh, returnees. Uh, the group hasn't quite taken off yet, but we're hanging in there. Uh, the criticism from some of the former inmates is, you know, I don't need more meditation instruction. I need a job. <laughs> and that's a very valid criticism. Uh, the other thing, your idea about uh, putting uh, someone in a Christian run home, do not do that. <laughs> do not. Uh, I, I tried that uh, because they had been very good. There's some real operators out there. They buy up whole apartment complexes sometimes and they run a tight ship. But they do not want idol worshippers there. And I've had Buddhist inmates uh, be, uh, and uh, Native American inmates being told, you cannot have that, that rosary, that mala, that Buddha statue, uh, uh, the, that beadwork. You cannot have any of that in here. And you must attend our service. Also prohibited from going to AA and NA because Jesus is enough. So do not do that. We can learn. We can learn a lot from what they've learned in terms of real estate and, and local zoning laws and so on. That's something that might be helpful. Thanks. <laughs> I think in practical terms I would say network Learn about the different facets of the challenge and, and then do an inventory. You know, can we meet them? You know, can we set up the, the, the conditions for success? And then I would also say, and why not? I mean, once you start to network, the power of networking is you see there's a lot of wisdom out there. There's, if, if, if you're looking for, you know, what, what's, who knows about this? Well, if you network enough, you'll find somebody who does, you know? And especially when you're doing uh, engaged service, you know, to collaborate. You don't have to do everything, you know? Connect them up to job counseling services, you know? You don't have to start your own, you know? You just do your part. 
and network and collaborate with the other necessary pieces. But to think that your part's the only part that matters, hmm. <laughs> Be careful with that one. Um, I would just like to suggest that it strikes me that if the two of you wrote a book to share your experiences, not only as individuals, but the experience of the Zen Center, that that might be really helpful to reaching a broader community than this room. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Next. <laughs> now, talking about knowing your limitations, I, I don't know what Jacques would say, but I know I am a doer. <laughs> you know? When you move it into the abstract, my mind sort of loses interest. <laughs> but but you do make a, a good point. I'm up, I'm like that, obviously. Um, but I also feel uh, tasked with documenting of what we've learned there, because it's, it's kind of a unique experiment to see, spend. Uh, 13 years in prison voluntarily, <laughs> and then uh, uh, you know find and explore and make mistakes, which you know, will be a good part of the book. Uh, but but also you know find application and and language of of uh, dharma uh, for a multi-ethnic incarcerated population. Um, it is a contribution to the culture, you know. I mean, I mean, uh, look in the room, right? This is not a very ethnically diverse community yet, and and so to to find uh, language and uh, um, an application that then can in some way be worded or at least try to be worded. Um, I, I think is uh, part of why I stepped down as a director uh, for this year. And uh, it, it, you know, I've learned you can you can feed that process in in different ways. You know, if you train people, right, you have to get your stuff together. And and then also the training itself teaches you things again. And that works better for me. I, I'm also not somebody who, you know, does the lonely work of writing a book in an attic room. Uh, it has to be informed. Um, so, uh, but I don't know what, it'll probably be more curriculum than it would be a book book. There's so many books. <laughs> uh, this is, again, kind of a practical question. Um, we have three different sanghas, three different traditions. The men will often ask, what tradition should I follow when I get out? What, what should I do? And um, I honestly don't have a pat answer to any of this. 
Um, any suggestions? Could you say a little bit about how it operates with three traditions? We have three yards where we have sanghas. Um, Terry heads up uh, the, the Zen sangha. We have another volunteer who heads up the Tibetan sangha. And uh, Tony and myself kind of head up the uh, Theravada sangha. Um, the men have read about other traditions. They might be practicing one in their particular sangha, but then they get curious about another tradition. And they will often ask me, so what do you think I should do? You know, you've, do you think this is a, a, a good uh, practice for me or should I look into something else? So in what ways are they different? Well, that's, that's a good answer to, to <laughs> ask them. But, it, it's, uh, you know, Zen being a little more formal, Theravada being a little very less formal. And, uh, and I don't know too much about Tibetan, so I really can't speak to that. Um, Um, More colorful? <laughs> sort of the, the Catholics of Buddhism, right? Yeah, they have the ceremony and they have the. <laughs> so, um, I'm really looking for a formulaic answer, frankly, you know, to, to be able to say, well, this is what I suggest. Mm. You have to drive 200 miles to the Zen Center in order to have a song. When I was trying to get uh, a resource for somebody we thought was going to be released, just they released right close by here, and I called the center here or emailed and checked in with a few other centers around just uh, using the uh, internet, and I felt like I had some kind of a start. And if somebody's going to be coming out, it uh, seems like you go and get get to know the people, and if there's somebody okay. that you have rapport with, if there's then that maybe is where you want to be. Um, what did Mao say? I don't care what color the cat is as long as it catches mice. It's gone. It, don't it? Chop that. Oh, don't chop in. Okay. Excuse me. I, I don't it's actually not true. Schools is important. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then we can pass it back then. It's on. It's, it's close. This is a, a question. I, I might be the only one here today who is working in a federal, I don't know for sure, but um, we have um, rules that um, you can't have any contact with an inmate who leaves, which is really pretty uh, difficult when you consider that um, they're there for quite a while. They're very involved in learning the traditions, the Sangha, the uh, Buddhist, and they want support. One person who actually was going to be coming back to the county where I live, which is San Mateo County, uh, asked me, you know, how can I come to a class that you teach or something like that? And because we, are, if, if we even see someone, we have to report it or we might no longer be able to be volunteers. So I was just wondering if anybody else experiences, do you have that issue as well? From state prison? I had to get 
special permission to write to somebody who was transferred who has to keep in touch, but I had to promise to never see him again if I wrote to him, uh, even when he was released. And uh, yes, I was told to have no contact with anybody after they were released. Mm-hmm. You know, just to speak to that, because some of that can be questioned actually on its veracity. <clears throat> um, if you're a volunteer without an institution, or sponsoring um, outfit behind you, then yes, that's what counts, is my understanding. But, you know, like ourselves, which is as an established nonprofit that uh, uh, has an office in a, in a 501c and all of that, um, we're able to uh, communicate and meet with people um, once they've been released. Uh, now, could they, you know, live in, in my backyard? No, they don't, they don't like that idea. So you're suggesting we actually establish a nonprofit? Yeah, I don't know what your status is, but I'm, what I'm saying is depending on, and I don't know exact ins and outs of that, but depending on your status, those rules change. Um. Right now, we're under the auspices of the Catholic chaplaincy. And uh, as you know, Buddhism is not recognized in the, in the prison system. So we're not according, accorded any of the privileges of the right. other faiths. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe establishing a nonprofit, as you said, maybe that would do it. We've been toying, we've mentioned it and toyed around with the idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish I could be more pointed about all the specifics, but, but look into what would serve you and do the thing that doesn't take a whole lot of time. <laughs> and, and, and I think the situation is not as cut and dried as Buddhism is not acknowledged. You know, it, in some places it is acknowledged, right? Yeah. In the federal system, it's, it's a valid uh, recognized religion. I, I just don't understand why... Get a, get get a lawyer on your advisory group or something, <laughs> you know, and, and and explore that some, and even a letter of inquiry to the warden on the stationery of a, a lawyer will do wonders, <clears throat> because uh, one of their main jobs is to not get sued, because they get sued a lot, and quite successful in many ways. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the things we'll do today is we'll and, and we'll, we'll leave ourselves time to discuss this. We'll, we'll create a way to connect to each other. You know, if if you're up for that, it, I, whoever has signed up, we now have your email, and 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 then we will discuss. Do you want that shared with everyone else? And then one way is that someone can put a question out to the group. You know, um, what, does anybody know facts and processes around being recognized as as a Buddhist group? You know, or what what are the the privileges and rights of of a prisoners 
um, personal spiritual practice. Yeah? And I suspect if you put that out to this group, someone in this group will either know the answer or know who to ask about the answer. That's the marvel of networking and collaborating. You know? Prison Dharma Network, right? Also a great resource. Yeah. You did say we would talk some today about uh, working with prison administrations. It's a pretty open-ended question. Yes. So you did say today we would talk some about working with prison administrations and, um, for instance, there seems to be the great disparity between what happens in the Folsom prisons and what's happening out at uh, San Quentin and what have, maybe, Jacques, what your history was and how you, maybe you developed a relationship or uh, mm-hmm. just, just, yeah. just a little bit about that would be probably really helpful for sure. us. Yeah. Well, I, I also want to admit that <clears throat> because of its location, <coughs> San Quentin is, is both in a different context and has a different history than the other state prisons uh, around volunteering and access and the community. But then uh, that has varied quite a bit too according to which warden was at the helm. Uh, I, I, you know, I remember when I started to go in, it was almost as hard to get in as it was to get out. And uh, and uh, prisons, you know, are like little towns. And uh, when I started going in two days a week, I began to have some time to just uh, meet people, you know, in the hallways, in the passing, in the in the cafeteria, and uh, that proved to be key. You know, it's a security institution, so they don't like change. Period. Uh, tough job as a Buddhist, of course. <laughs> uh, but then uh, a relationship really matters that way. If they start to know who you are and, and they can put a feeling with the face, um, uh, that goes a long way. So, uh, I, I, so much so that I made it a point that I'd schedule time where I would just hang out there in the beginning and, and make these connections and uh, buy the... Uh, uh, donuts and hand them out and <laughs> depending on right you, you don't want to send you home with go buy donuts for because um, you don't want to be too obvious about it either but particularly in the old days that, that was a good way it was that simple um, so I can't emphasize that you know the building of relationships Stop, you know, when I teach new volunteers to come in, I, I you know, it's little things like at the gate, um, wait till the officer signals you in. You know, become visible to the person. Every movement that you make communicates how you understand their job. If they see that reflected, 
they'll reward it because being a gate officer at San Quentin is a tough job. There are a lot of people going in and out. Um, so if your movement communicates some understanding of where you are in people's jobs, um, you know that's one aspect, right? Then if you uh, are able to um, communicate and establish a relationship, uh, that's huge in a prison. So stop, you know, go early, leave later, and and talk with these people. About doesn't matter what it's about. You know, my, my last conversation with the front gate guard was, man, this global warming shit, they're making it up. Is what he said. <laughs> I said, oh, is that so? Right? When that works really well, when you're in conversations where you don't agree, is that so? And then, you know, you can keep going. You can, and you can say it six times, nobody noticed. <laughs> and educate yourself about the, the quirks of the rules and regulations of that prison. Because there's this, this, I've, I've never been able to figure out what they are, what they can change, and what they can't change. But it does seem to change location to location. And to educate yourself about that, so so you just make sure you're not consistently challenging some some regulation that's uh, that stands in that location. Well, I would think that you would probably want, never want to put yourself in a position where you're seen as the adversary for the job that they're trying to do there. And yeah. I mean, you may have that in the back of your mind that you're trying to accomplish something. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I'm asking your opinion, but it seems yeah. like, I mean, I mean, basically they're not going to want to cooperate with you if they think that you're... Um, not wanting to cooperate with them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not that different than us in the sense that uh, we have a whole story about them and they have a whole story about us. Yeah. Right? And so, um, get to the other side of that. Um, also, in the, on the rare occasions that there's a funeral of an officer, you know, and there's a memorial service, go to it. That will surprise the heck out of people. Uh, sometimes there's, uh, you know, the Red Cross uh, does uh, blood donations. Uh, sign up. Get seen in these places. And people go, huh, huh. Adds up. Um, just out of curiosity, I'm not all that familiar with the uh, with the state administration here in California. Um, has anyone assaulted the? I mean, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically. The uh, um, the Department of Corrections at the at the state level to kind of institutionalize the Buddhist presence in the in the in the state. <laughs> I love the word assaulted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I ask is in, in, in Missouri, Kalen McAllister, who started Inside Dharma in, the, in, in, in Missouri, literally assaulted the Missouri Department of Corrections and pestered them and banged on the door and sat in the outer office for a better part of a year, as I understand it. 
until she finally got in and gained a mandate to provide a mandate to provide a Buddhist presence in every prison in the state of Missouri. And then she went beyond that, and every time there was an opening for a chaplain in the state, she went and interviewed. And she got bumped and ignored and so on and so forth until this past year. She got, she got it. She went into Farmington. I don't know how many times she had uh, uh, gone in and interviewed, and she got it. She's the, not only the first Buddhist chaplain in the state of Missouri, she's the first non-Christian chaplain in the state of Missouri. And so there's a substantial presence in that system right now. Good point. You know, uh, uh, actually, um, I have some connection right now with the, one of the undersecretaries. They have a couple of them. It's like the Soviet Union, not the, the Department of Corrections. It's organized very interestingly. Um, and it would be a good time. Actually, yeah, yeah, and if I can help with that, I'd, I'd be happy to. I, I can't promise, but I, I, I do think it'd be a good time. Do you want to follow up on that, Danny? Did that? Okay, good. Please. Have you had any uh, COs or guards sit in with you in the meditation? Uh, uh, no, no. Um, they uh, uh, they joke about it sometimes. Um, or is this the mindlessness meditation class? It's, it's a favorite one, right? Or they, uh, they they say, "What do you want me to announce? Medication or meditation?" You know what what is it? But but I also remember on a rainy day, way in the beginning, we finally established the meditation class. And the way they announce, they announce it, as, as I'm sure most of you know, is, is they call the movement is good, right? So over the loudspeaker, it goes, meditation is good, meditation is good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, hearing this under an umbrella, soaked and, and kind of wondering why I'm here at all. And I'm going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but do they sit in on any of the classes? No, that that, that isn't so much uh, cool either way, right? right? Um, but they're interested, and they'll talk to you individually. And what, what, you know, what do you what do you think of this, or have something for that, or? Um, but the, the, you know, in terms of the culture change that would need to happen. Uh, uh, that you're right on. The curriculum of the officers in Galt Academy, where where they go to train, that's what would need to change first, you know, or or be significantly added to. Were you there when Hennessy mandated all the officers to take a stress reduction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. We did that. We did that. The sheriff (laughs) in, in San Francisco mandated that all 300 officers do a stress reduction course, and we did them in batches of 30. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. Uh, now, we could talk for, you know, doing classes that are mandated is a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe there needs to be some acknowledgement of the whole 
question of professionally certifying Buddhist chaplains through the, the board certification process, which uh, is it's necessary to gain credibility as a professional chaplain within the California prison system. And I'm not really up to date on, on where that stands, but just to acknowledge that, that I couldn't, you know, without having board certification, apply for a job as a professional chaplain in the California prison system. And for those of you who are in our chaplaincy program, we are exploring that. I think we didn't realize how simple it was to offer certification. I don't know, but why not? <laughs> We're up for it. <laughs> so just to be clear about the law is that you need to rotate longer use the mic and ask questions. You have to be board certified to legally be hired by the prison system. Do you have to be board certified to be hired by the prison system? Credential, and I'm, I, I'm, I don't have the details, but a I know that. Degree. The what? A divinity degree, perhaps. Yeah. Which is hard to do if you don't have a divinity degree. Exactly. <laughs> a, a non-theistic divinity degree. Okay. <laughs> um, the whole issue of certification of chaplains is, uh, is uh, a controversial one, and if you're interested in certification of chaplains, there is a Buddhist chaplaincy uh, bulletin board where people have discussed these issues at length. And so there are some ways around getting a Master's of Divinity, although that's the easiest way to become certified. And you do have to do CPE training, and you, you have to have the equivalent of a Master's of Divinity and how that get work, gets worked out. There is a white paper on how to convert retreat experience into substitute for some of those hours. So that information is available if you want to pursue that. There, um, how about if we do that after this? How will we do it? Uh, well, the easiest way is to sign everybody up to the Buddhist chaplaincy uh, group. There is a group, and you can just sign on to it. I, I just can't remember off the top of my head how to get into that particular Yahoo group. We'll, but it we'll, is we'll do it the other way around. We will email you the link, and then you can sign yourself up. Perfect. And then as Maria saying, on that site, there's lots of information. What I was talking about earlier is something that, that's to be certified to to be acknowledged by the chaplaincy board. Now, I think there may be a different kind of certification that may work for access to the prisons. So that would be, that will be the thing to explore. So advocacy, you know, we're, we're you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, there's, there's doing the work, the direct, 
face to face and then there's the advocacy that gets us the access, the support to make it possible. And I would say they're both valuable. And I would encourage you to uh, recognize that, but also it can be part of your service. You know, if you know a way to connect someone to the information they need, do it. You know? It supports us all, and it's more important. It supports the work that we all want to flourish. It's occurred to me that one thing that we haven't really talked about, we've talked about a lot of the heavy, difficult, frustrating, grievous parts of the work. Mm -hmm. And I'd like us to also acknowledge the joy. Mm. Because I find working in, in the prison population, I've been doing it this long because it's incredibly joyful and incredibly challenging and growthful for myself and just amazingly rewarding and life enriching and I just felt like I have to testify to that mm. encourage anyone who's thinking about it to continue to explore it because it's, it's one of the most joyful things I've ever done mm. yeah I want to totally underwrite that statement Totally, and and joyful in, in, in you know not in the always jumping up and down way, but in the in the fulfilling way, right? In the enriching way, in the you know there's sort of a poverty of of um, of um, what is it called spiritual poverty in the way that we live, right? Because of our skin color and our Geography and our income—we're uh, cut off from a whole slice of reality, and and we don't really know it. It's kind of we're fish in that water, trying to describe that water, not so easy. Like, <laughs> uh, but uh, no way that came from. But. The, the point is that uh, the richness of, of getting into an institution, you can't find that anywhere, where you get to meet all these different races, all these different classes and experiences of people and slices of reality that you can't find anywhere. Not in that sort of concentration of collecting that. And there's a gratefulness. They know who you are. They know why you're there. They don't. You don't need to be there. And uh, there's a, a beginner's mind with these people that you don't find in the rest of Bay Area. <laughs> so, and I could go on, but I just want to underwrite what you said. Um, I'd just like to share a story from when I went in a couple months ago. And this guy named Mike, uh, who's been there for a long time, talked to me after the meditation. And he said, I've been wanting to tell you this for a while, but I can just tell that when you look at us, you really care about us. You have compassion. And um, he said, I could talk to you till I'm blue in the face. 
and tell you how it is here, but you wouldn't understand. We just don't get that here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very moving mm-hmm. to hear that, mm-hmm. and it really, really surprised me. Mm. Um, it's not something I expected to hear going there, and I think it changed my aspiration a little bit mm-hmm. in, in terms of um, not necessarily needing to do anything there, mm-hmm. but just to be right. to be compassionate and that that is being conveyed and mm-hmm. received. Um, right. And, and then there's the whole level of bearing witness, right? Allowing yourself to be troubled by the amount of injustice and the amount of racism. And, uh, and so your presence is a, a, a statement of your willingness to experience that. They have to. There's no way out. But the fact that you choose to uh, moves them. And, and uh, that comes back to you in remarkable ways, in surprising ways. I think another important form of bearing witness is um, then talking to other people outside about what we experience inside, that one of the things that the men inside say you recognize that we're not animals. Mm-hmm. You treat us like real people. And one of the things that working inside, I think we all learn, is that these are people like you and me very, you know, very much. Um, and, you know, that they are not a breed apart, that they are not beasts, that they are not animals. And... Um, we have real effect by talking in our circle of friends, our colleagues, our sanghas, about the people that we meet inside, that we, we, have, we can really um, educate those in our circle and create a real ripple effect. And working inside has made me much more um, focused on the criminal justice system in a way that I never was before. Mm-hmm. So it's made me educate myself mm-hmm. about the issues mm-hmm. and I talk to others about them. So I think that, that that's a real value in volunteers going inside and then coming out into the community and witnessing mm-hmm. to, to everyone in our circle as well. Mm-hmm. One thing I discovered pretty early on teaching at jail, where I have new people almost each time, um, it became very important to tell them each time that I am a volunteer, mm-hmm. that I come, uh, and the way I put it, I tell them I'm 65 years old, the most important thing to me that I have now is my time. And where am I spending my time? I'm spending it here with you. And I discovered that it gives them a sense that I consider them important enough to give them my time. And that really um, 
seems to affect them a lot when they understand that mm-hmm. it's freely given. Nobody's paying me. Right. And the only time there was ever, I ever thought there would be a fight in my classroom was when I said something about doing this work with you and somebody who was going to be let out of jail that very day said, you don't do any work in here. You're just a volunteer. You don't get paid. So you're not really working. And the class got very indignant on my behalf. And I thought it really matters to them to know that people, and I'm not the only one volunteering out there, that people are willing to just give to them and they value it too. And this woman's defiance was um, very poorly accepted by the group as a whole as a disrespect for someone who was giving to them. So it was an interesting experience to have. I have some questions for you. Um, what do you experience as the different characteristics between transitory groups and more established groups? Who, who here deals with more transitory groups? Just the two of you? Huh? So everybody else deals with a more settled group? Everyone else is doing? Yeah. Oh, how interesting. Hmm? Well, one of the things I thought you meant to say it's all transitory. Yeah, I thought you were being I thought you were being Buddhist on me. (laughs) Oh, well, that's interesting. Maybe you'd like to say a little bit about the challenges and characteristics of it. Yeah, I um, just from listening to how people have the experience in prison. Um, one of my personal practices that I have to um, do all the time is to let go because people are in my class for two weeks or two months or four months and then suddenly they disappear. They're in a program, they've been released. So my personal um, practice is having to let go of relationships that come and go rather quickly in the jail. in the sort of practical matters of teaching, every week I have to teach so a beginner can get it. Mm-hmm. I cannot progress to very deep levels of teaching. Mm-hmm. And so I have to include that as sort of asides as I go along because there are people there for months. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't ever go in without a plan in the jail. But it never fails that the plan isn't completed in just the way I expected it would be. Mm-hmm. In the situation of teaching, I teach in a trailer which is outside in the yard. There are, there's often disturbance from the yard. There's people marching and chanting. There are people out in the yard screaming and um, having conversations and singing. And people knock on the door to come in and use the water fountain. They knock on the door to use the bathroom. It's so unusual to have a quiet meditation period. Mm. And I don't know if that's characteristic in a prison with an ongoing recognized sangha. But this is not a Buddhist class. This is just a meditation class. It's not Buddhist at all. And so this sort of 
it's it's as if every week is demanding of really quick responses to unusual circumstances that characterizes i would say the teaching so if i ever have an hour and a half time with these women uh where i actually go through and follow through a plan it's almost kind of boring to me mm. really um mm-hmm. i i sometimes think i'm kind of hooked on that sort of meeting what comes up however it has been an extremely powerful personal practice of mindfulness for me because i cannot predict what the heck's going to be happening including i was telling them at lunch somebody trying to climb in the window one time right during the meditation and um power outage where i didn't know if i'd be locked in or what or you know every prison movie that you ever heard of comes to mind in these <laughs> circumstances every week something really unusual seems to happen it's not routine probably in prison you have the same kind of stuff but the most pronounced thing is the differences in personalities constantly turning over and the need to teach at almost like every level at once meditation so every time i do a guided meditation i start with just as was it ann did in that way but i always also include for those who've been there longer a little bit about dealing with emotion dealing with thinking opening to and there's a lot of experiences coming in around us opening to those um finding our anchor when distractions happen how we go back to our anchor so to me it's a really challenging practice and the women say that because their life is just like that in the dorm that that's very useful for them to actually have some mm. of these distractions that and and with the guidance that they get from the teacher they learn how to handle themselves with all these interruptions what they really love is qigong and i know like 10 moves of qigong nothing more but i always include some of this movement in the class toward the beginning for calming and just for kind of coming into the body and really experiencing the body so i never almost never do a class without a qigong component in it even if it's only just two or three simple moves mm-hmm. and um you know i've had people go out and come back in and i've had people go out and call back in and say oh it, it really did help me to breathe a few times before i made a buy and i didn't make the buy and then there are people who reoffend in just the same way and come back in so one of the hard things for me is never knowing the results but trusting because i trust my own practice that it can help them as much as it helps me and that's how i that's how i go in and that's how i leave it what i leave Mm. it helps me it will help them in some way that i can't even imagine mm. well well said uh, the current situation that i'm in is not only um very transient population but also for the class that i do it's um mandatory so mm. it's really challenging um I have found in the last couple of times that I first of all made up a guided meditation that is really concrete on the body scan and very um in like very detailed 
instruction on how to pay attention to various parts of the body and asking them only to well I get I get their cooperation at the beginning of the meditation period by stating that I really get that they may not want to be there and I get that and um, appreciate that they still are there and would they please um, just be respectful and quiet um, that's all that I'm really asking of them because some are wanting to be there and wanting to do the meditation so that little instruction seems to really help to get the thing off to a, a good start and then I have written two different guided meditations that consist of these very detailed concrete uh, no abstractions here because um, some of the women are still having residual you know effects of their substance abuse and have highly agitated um, movements and things like that and um, and we're also right out in the middle of the pod we're not in a closed room so there's all kinds of custodial work going on and it, there's tremendous amount of distraction uh, but what has seemed to work is to um, then just ask them after we do a certain portion of body scan then say, okay, now I'm going to ask you to just sit quietly with this focus that we're doing on being in your body, feeling the feet, feeling, etc., for two minutes. And I bring my little mindfulness bell, and they kind of like that. So I do the mindfulness bell, let them sit for two minutes, and... Um, Mostly I'm reverting to just praying that they'll be quiet <laughs> um, for the two minutes and then go back to continuing the body scan and then maybe, okay, now we're going to just sit very quietly for three minutes and that's all you have to do and I know you can do it. You know, just a lot of encouragement. It is very, very, very basic. It, it's There's nothing about trying to really connected necessarily with some of the maybe agenda that I would have had in other settings because I just feel that it's a great compassion practice to go in, to be present, to um, offer the beginning of some mindfulness meditation but strictly in body sensation, body um, recognition and um, that. The second meditation that I have now also experimented with, I do focus more on the heart area and in the guided part I will speak about many of us feel different emotions, they connect with our heart in some way, some of us may feel anger, so I'm trying to introduce that as another component but again, just um, giving them a lot of imagery, uh, you know, detailed imagery around the, the area that I'm focusing on and the breathing, and then asking them just to sit for three minutes 
and then go back to another part. So that's really worked the best so mm. far of all the things that I've tried. And actually, it has been a bit amazing because there is complete quiet during this time. And um, it's a very respectful silence, and yet it's not even close to what I do in my own practice as far as the Buddhist meditation that I've been taught um, and practice. But, and that just goes out of my mind. It's not even like, well, that's what I'm here to do, to try to introduce them to Buddhist meditation. I just am really there in the service of being present to people who are incarcerated, who may be there one week and never have any, that's the other thing like Margaret was saying, you never have any real feedback on any lasting or results oriented things, so it's a good practice in that way as well. Um, it is challenging. I mean, on these rainy days, I have to get up early and I question myself, why am I going in here? There's a lot of noise. People have to be kind of dragged literally out of their beds to come over to the meditation. But, um, you know, I, I just, uh, there, is, there is something to it. I'm really, really grateful that I can be with this population. I'm guessing that they have next to nothing when they're even when they're in jail they don't have a lot of stimulation or a lot of programs that help them and so meditation is good (laughs) (laughs) anyone got any questions or comments with regards to that version of meditation and guided meditation I think, yeah, having a sense of what it is you want to do and how you're doing it, and then noticing, you know? Sometimes the obvious is really helpful, like afterwards asking people, how was that? You know, and then listening carefully, you know? How was it for you? Yeah. (laughs) And then if their their comments were uh, like, all over the place, like, hmm, you know. I I remember doing what I thought was quite a good guided meditation and then asking, how was that? And the guy said, oh, it was terrific. I was just on my motorbike. I was going... (laughs) (laughs) Right, Right. yeah, I've been there too. I've been there with moving images where you thought, this is going to really touch people. And then you'd say, well, you know, I didn't know you were going to be talking that much. (laughs) But I, but I, you know, I managed to zone it out. Yeah. Okay. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) What other kind of meditations do you offer? We have a man in our group, uh, Eugene Tashima, who has done 
uh, some studying work with uh, Charlotte Selber. And uh, so the sensory awareness that he does, I find, brings men to a wonderful state that just seems to be just kind of what we're trying to teach. Can you describe it a little bit for people who don't know Charlotte? Uh, Jean will ask, what is the space between your shoulders? Or is there enough room behind your eyeball? And these seem like strange questions, and then you just really tune in and you start paying attention, and you're, you're discovering your body in a way that, uh, that you had never thought you had any sense of. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that an important part of that is working at not starting with all the assumptions, but discovering what is in the world. And it's just body awareness, so it's foundation of mindfulness, but um, it, it seems like it covers a lot of stuff. And then, Jacques, you said you've done some work with Charlotte Silver, too. Yes. Is, you find it, uh, you bring it into your work, too? Yeah. Uh, I wish I, you know, remembered more of it than I do. I study mindfulness for highly personal reasons, of course. I'm kind of a forgetful person. Um, one thing we do that's related to it, and I found this useful, both as a sort of instructional piece and, and as a way to settle a room of people. Uh, and maybe we can try it for five minutes. Sure. A little, little exercise. Um, and um, the way it goes, and you model it at first, is you describe the sensations that you're dis- experiencing at the, at the moment. You do it for 30 seconds, and then somebody else does. In a group, it usually goes around. There'd be you know, way too much of us. We'd be here till dark if we did it that way. So let, let's take five people, right? And uh, um, feel free when somebody ended to, to start. And if two of you start at the same time, then one of you drops off. Right? And the idea is to report from sensations you experience at the moment. And what it helps teach is, hey, there's a difference between sensations, thoughts, and emotions. Because it's really that basic, isn't it? For, for a lot of people to find out. I mean, we've been there. So uh, other people are there. And it's useful. And the interesting thing is that the room really settles afterwards. Um, so, and then you can make people aware of that. Can you feel the difference in the room when you pay attention to experience rather than story? So I'll start and then... Uh, four of you uh, follow up and we'll just sort of like a big jazz ensemble here sense who that's going to be and if you know two instruments start at the same time one of them will fall away and it'll be just well, like well let's do it this way so okay. the next person one with the mic will go and then they'll uh-huh. pass it to someone and then well, that person smart. will know to go very smart good uh, I have a mic, so I can start. Okay. 
hearing cars outside the window, feeling the tips of my toes touching the carpet, sensing my fingers touching each other, breathing in, feeling my belly rise, swallowing, opening my eyes, seeing light, people, feeling my eyelids come down again. Slight itch on my nose. Feeling some difference of pressure against the back of my chair as I breathe in and out. Feeling my lips dry. Noticing a feeling in my ears uh, is feeling like they're almost uh, connected by a wire or something together. I'm noticing the inside of my throat, and I have a kind of a continuing odd feeling from oh, from the back of my mouth down to about my sternum. I just feel a awareness of my inside of my throat. And as I just said throat, I was noticing my um, larynx, I guess, my voice box. feel my belly rise. I feel the snugness of my shirt across my back. Now I'm noticing my ears not close to the inside but closer to the outside. Pressure, itching, pressure, hands, sitting, hearing, breathing, hearing, breathing, 
hearing, hunger, heat, hands, lap, hearing, pressure, sitting, hearing, swallowing, moisture, pressure, hearing, breathing, itching, Warmth, heat, hearing, sitting, breathing, hearing. stomach. Shoulders, hearing, breathing. Warmth, pressure in the back, drowsiness, eyes tired, throat dry, lips dry, sitting bones very apparent. Feet solid on the cushion. Palms, warm, almost sweaty. Face flushed. Warm. the feeling of the carpet on the bottom of my feet, my sit bones on the chair, my thumb against my jeans, my turtleneck against the underside of my chin, hair against my cheek, the microphone in my hand, the phone at my side,
feet on the cushion. Hair on my cheek. Fingers touching. Straight back. Heaviness in my throat. Heartbeat. Take it this far. Coming back. <coughs> you would say something like, do you notice the difference in the room? <laughs> right? And it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, five minutes, six minutes. Um, it's a very intimate thing to do, actually. I, I, I don't know if you can get that, but you know, without all the elaboration, you're basically sharing your being and the way it signals to you. So sometimes uh, uh, you can do it instead of a check-in because it is a bit like a check-in. Also, if people uh, start to confuse it with uh, like I'm feeling tired because yesterday, you know, we worked uh, much later than I had hoped, and I couldn't leave the kitchen. But you know, right, right. That will happen, and then you can just point that out uh, as an inquiry, rather than oh, he did it wrong, or she did it wrong. You can say, did you notice a difference between people are reporting strictly what happened in their bodies, and when they would elaborate on it. You know, so, so when there was a difference between sensation and thinking. So you're teaching this is sensation, this is thinking, and this is feeling. And sometimes people will go, you know, and I really wanted to um, get out of that kitchen because, you know, I wanted to come to this class and and so, you know, I... Uh, I spoke up to my supervisor, and so then that's action. And it's very useful for people to go, oh, okay, this is this, and this is this, and this is this. And really, when I come back to my body, uh, all that traffic between emotion and thought and action grounds in centers. And, uh, and so this is a place, you know, this is refuge. This is a place I can come back to, to help me orient this mad adventure of the human condition. <laughs> um, and, of course, as with everything, it, it, you do it a number of times before that quarter goes down all the way. But it's, uh, it's practical and uh, it's practice.
Thank you. So who would like to do a closing meditation? Maybe one of those well, well-trained chaplaincy people. <laughs> um, there's something about um, acknowledging and holding the experience we've had helps it to sink in, helps it to be appreciated, helps it to be processed. No? So that too. So sometimes when you're with a group and something very powerful has happened, sometimes powerfully wonderful, you know, it was very intimate and everyone felt really open and connected, sometimes it was really difficult. There was a lot of pain in the room. You know, it was very raw. And, and it's asking to be held. It's, it's asking to return to let something go down, settle down. Sometimes it's just about enabling transition. Okay, here we are in this space, and in a moment, it's going to cha- totally change, and we're going to go to the next thing. So, how to sense that in the room and take it, hold it, let it be, and then prepare it, and then let it come to a close. So, who'd like to do that? Let's start by just each of us sensing our own hearts and what's there right now. If it's emotion, if it's boredom, if it's upset, if it's a compassion, what's there? And perhaps send ourselves some gratitude and appreciation for bringing ourselves here today, sharing with others, hearing others. And sending ourselves some good wishes that we may put these teachings to work. And then recognize all the other hearts in this room beating, filled with their own emotions, their own stories, their own experiences. And send some gratitude and appreciation to all the other hearts in this room. some goodwill, wishes for happiness, 
well-being. And then as we've been talking so much today about our sanghas inside and our sanghas outside, faces probably come to our minds. And we might think of these beings suffering, joyous, worthwhile beings. And send compassion and appreciation, gratitude and goodwill to those also. Wherever they are. We might also think of the many, many people who have been harmed by crime, have been victimized, in our state, in our country, in our world, and send them our compassion and our good wishes for their healing. including in these, the perpetrators, their families, the families of the victims, the incredible suffering network. And then opening our hearts to this vast suffering world If there's any blessing or good that comes from our practice together today, we offer it up for the benefit and the liberation of all beings. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. So be it. So thank you very much. Thank you for coming. And thank you for doing this work. Yes. Um, it's, it's a gift. You know, it, it's, it's so natural and maybe unfortunate that our human tendency is to turn away from suffering and, and um, as such leave something unattended not held, without being borne witness to, without being offered the support, the compassion that it's asking for. And so thank you for modeling a different kind of response. And may your efforts reach out and touch all the people that you touch and may it resonate through them and touch all the people that they touch until everyone's included. (laughs) Thank you very much. I would like to uh, thank you also for learning and teaching together here today. 
felt like a very organic process. And for uh, answering the call. I mean, you all lived lives that uh, have been committed to awakening to uh, be sitting here today. It's a choice. So I want to thank you for making that choice. Saying yes. And um, I want to thank you. It's been great here to... <laughs> like the old days, huh? Yes, yeah, <laughs> kind of fun. have time like that. And um, there's more information about uh, the Inside Prison Project on the web. It's uh, www.insideprisonproject.org. And uh, there's a training in the restorative justice work at the end of May that we do. And uh, there's more trainings about the integrated process coming up, but don't have a solid date yet. So um, I think the easiest way would be to share the mailing list. Yeah. And then we can inform you, send you um, what we're cooking up. You will receive an email and it will include the link to the chaplaincy site and it will include mm -hmm. a link mm -hmm. to the inside program. And, and, and let's, as a, let's use it as a resource. You know, let's use it as a way to inform each other uh, about things that might be helpful in the work that we're doing. And then also use it the other way. I invite you to use it the other way to put a question to the group. I'd like to know about this. Does anybody have any clues? Yeah. And, and, and maybe we'll conspire in a way that, that will, you know, create advocacy. You know? Margaret Mead said something wonderful that I can't remember. Who remembers that wonderful <laughs> quote? About a small group. <laughs> it's something about never, never, never underestimate what a small committed group can do and then something about and... Here's one, here's one that <laughs> kind of tags on to that by Thomas Merton. And he says, uh, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all, if not perhaps the results opposite to what you expect. <laughs> so you get used to this idea you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. You gradually struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for specific people. In the end, it is the reality of personal relationship that determines everything. So may that be some support as you face the significant odds that come with <laughs> answering this call. Mm -hmm.